God, you are worthy of all our worship. We were created to glorify you. So this morning, as we continue to fix our attention upon you, recognize that this isn't the only way, this isn't the only time that we are called to worship, that we have the opportunity this morning to continue in togetherness the worship that we've been doing all week, ascribing to you your worth, the glory that you're due in our thoughts, in our words, in our attitudes, in our actions, in the, the jobs that we perform, in the ways that we interact with other people, in the, in the ways in which we love our neighbors. God, all of those as an offering to you, as a sacrifice to you. We confess the times in our lives, God, where, where we take the glory that is due your name and we dole it out to people who are unworthy or institutions that are unworthy or things that are unworthy of worship. And yet, we are sometimes weak and we sometimes are short-sighted and sometimes we turn the worship that you are worthy of even onto ourselves and we confess that. God, as we gather here this morning, we lift up your name because you're worthy. The individual streams of our week-long worship here converge into a mighty river of praise and glory as we celebrate you together, both through the singing of your praise, through songs, the study of your word, our interaction with one another, the dedication of children to your glory, our response to your movement among us. God, all of these things we do because you are great and mighty and there is no other because you are God in heaven and you alone are our sure and steady anchor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you know that at the conclusion of the text we read, the author encourages us to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. If you've been a part of our Hebrew study from the beginning, you know that the the author, the writer of the Hebrews is making a case for the fact that Jesus is supreme, that he is worthy of all our worship, that he is worthy of our praise because he is supreme. And he gives a, a variety of different categories. He starts talking about Jesus as our high priest. He talks about Jesus as our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then he has to stop. And he says, well, you know, there's some things here I want to talk to you about, but I can't because there's spiritual maturity that's necessary. And some of you, he says, are those who sort of sit around the periphery of faith. You've heard Christian things. You've tasted what God can do. You have sort of a, a, an understanding of faith, but you haven't trusted in him yourself. And he's like, in those cases, you never grow up into maturity. And in fact, for those who just taste and fall away, there's no place else for them to find repentance. But he said, I, I don't, I'm confident of greater things, right? He says, in your case, to the, those he's writing to originally and then to us by extension, he says, in your case, I see all kinds of evidence of your love for Christ manifested in your service for one another. And I'm praying that you have this surety, this hope, this steadfast assurance of hope that will not fail, that will continue, right? That will keep going. And he's like, that you'll grow in your faith, that you'll have both faith and hope and love and that you will imitate those who've gone before us and who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. He's juxtaposing the idea he's already said of the fact that we shouldn't follow after the example of the Israelites who knew a lot of things about God, who had seen God work in powerful ways, could tell some really cool God stories, but had not themselves, in fact, trusted in God. And when they got to the promised land, they were not able to enter into his rest because they had not coupled their knowledge of him with faith and action, right? 
He says, don't be like them. And here in six, he then says, but there are some you could imitate, not the Israelites for sure, but there are some you could imitate. And there are all kinds of examples of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. But he gives us in the text we're studying this morning, one specific example, one great example in the person of Abraham. The person of Abraham who God made promises to, and then Abraham through faith and patience inherited those promises. Not even all of them in his lifetime, but it would do us well in order to understand the text we're looking at at the end of chapter six. uh, we, We would, I think, be helped by being reminded again about the promises that God made to Abraham. So keep your finger in Hebrews chapter six and turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're gonna move through this fairly rapidly, but I just wanna refresh your memory for those of you who already know about the story of Abraham and recognizing that there are some of you sitting in the room this morning or maybe who are watching this on a podcast or you're streaming it. By the way, if you're live streaming the service at home, I'm gonna try and look in the camera. We got seats here for you. Come and be a part of this thing. What do you... I mean, I know your couch is comfortable, but come on. Uh, as we study it, I recognize there are some of you might not know anything about Abraham. So let me give you just a sort of a quick reminder of the promises of God. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a guy named Abram. His name will be changed to Abraham. They're the same guy. God comes to him in, in verse one of Genesis 12 and says this, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a pretty cool promise that God makes to this guy, Abram. Abram at this point is an old man, right? He's, he's not a young whippersnapper. He's a guy that's in his 70s. Not that that's old. Some of you are in your 70s and you're very youthful. So don't take that the wrong way. But he's a guy who's kind of past the point of having a ton of kids, if you know what I'm talking about. And God says to him, I'm going to make your descendants great, which is a, a bit of an, ex, like kind of an exceptional promise to make to a man who is in his seventies to say, all the generations of the earth are going to be blessed by you. And I'm going to make your descendants great. When we get to Genesis 13, he reaffirms some of this promise in verse 14 of Genesis 13. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, that's his nephew, Uh, God says to him, lift up your eyes, Abram, and look from the place where you are, north and south and east and west, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted, right? If you can count the dust of the earth, then your offspring will be counted. This is something he's saying to a guy who has no children and is in his 70s. It's a bold claim. I'm going to make your offspring uncountable. That's the kind of, and that's a big deal. This is a big promise, especially for a culture who placed a lot of value in your lineage, a lot of value in your family, a lot of value in your descendants and who you were able to pass things on to. God says, I'm going to give you more descendants than you can count. He says, lift up your eyes and look, I'm going to give you this land. Verse 17, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved. If we skip ahead to Genesis 15, by the way, Genesis 14 is where we see Abram encounter a guy named Melchizedek. We're going to come back to that next week. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. In Genesis 15, look at what it says in verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son. Your very own son shall be your heir, is what he says. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, 
so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God says to Abram, you're gonna have an incredible number of descendants. You won't be able to count them all. Look at the stars. If you can count the stars, that's how many offspring you're gonna have. And Abram's going, are you joking? I don't have even one offspring. I don't have one child, much less uncountable children, right? I just don't understand what's happening here. And God says, I will do this thing. I am making you a promise. I will bless you and you will greatly increase. And it says here in this chapter that Abram believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's faith in the person of Abram. As we see the story progress, uh, if you get into chapter 16 and 17, there are moments of great faith for Abram and his wife. There are moments of great doubt for Abram and his wife. Their names are changed by God eventually. Uh, But when we come to chapter 21, exactly what God promised happens. By that time, his name has been changed to Abraham. His wife's name is Sarah. And they are given a child in their old age. In fact, Sarah says, all people are going to laugh when they hear this story. That, you know, me, nearly 100 years old, uh, that I've given birth to a child in my old age. This is a source of laughter for people. And they name their son Isaac. This is the child of promise. This is the, the fulfillment of the promise of God and the way in which the promise will continue to be fulfilled because it's through the descendants of Isaac that he'll have these innumerable generations of descendants. And then the whole thing kind of comes off the rails in Genesis 22. He finally has his son, Isaac, his son from his wife, Isaac, the child of promise. And in Genesis chapter 22, God says this in verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? Can you just imagine this for a second? Finally, they have this child. They're raising this child. They're teaching him to do all the things that you've taught your children to do or that you were taught by your parents. They're walking and loving and living with this child. And now God comes and says, I want you to take that child, the one who is the fulfillment of my promise, and I want you to sacrifice him to me on a mountain I'm gonna show you. Genesis 22 tells the story. Abram goes and does what God says. He takes his son to the place of sacrifice. And it's clear in the text that Isaac understood what was happening with one caveat. He understood what a sacrifice was. He understood where they were headed. What he didn't understand is who the sacrifice was gonna be. In fact, on the journey, Isaac, his son, looks at his dad, Abraham, and says, hey, dad, we have the wood, we have the fire, we have all the stuff we need for the sacrifice, but you know what, knuckleheads that we are, we forgot to bring an animal to sacrifice. And Abraham has to look at his son and say, God himself will provide He takes the child of promise, the one through whom the promises of God will be fulfilled. And can you just put yourself in his shoes? Imagine, if you've got children, imagine what it would feel like to take your son, who's capable of reasoning and looking at the situation. Imagine taking that son and binding his wrists and binding his ankles as he looks into your eyes with fear, right? As he looks at you with confusion, like his dad come off his hinges? Like, what is happening? Abraham takes his own son Isaac, the child of promise, and he lays him on the altar. Do you imagine that Isaac was super excited about that? Or do you imagine that there were moments where Isaac was looking at his son going, Dad, what is this? What are we doing? And it says that Abraham takes the knife and raises it to slay his son. Why did he do this? Why did he do this thing? He did it because God asked it of him. 
Because God asked it of him. And why did God ask it of him, by the way? It says that he tested Abraham. Anytime we see God sort of asking a question, uh, we know that God's not asking the question because he needs to know the answer, right? Does God know, before this whole thing goes down, that Abraham is faithful? Yes, he does. Does God know what Abraham will do? Yes, he does. Does God know that everything is less important to Abraham than God himself. Yeah, God knows all that. You know who this test is for? It's not for God. It's not that God learned something on this mountain. It's for Abraham. You see, when he raises the knife to slay his son, that is the proof, that is the evidence for Abraham that there is nothing in his life that is more important to him than faith coupled with action, obedience. There's nothing more important to him than God. Because look, in slaying his son, not only does he lose the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him, not only does his hope of those generations go away, but he's gonna break down his relationship with his wife, right? You can't imagine that things are gonna go great with Sarah when he goes home after this particular day, right? Hey, you know, we went to the sacrifice and uh, I killed our son because God told me to. That's, that's probably a deal breaker with regard to their marriage. He'd lose respect with the, the people around him. He'd lose respect with his, with his whole company of people, his servants. He'd lose, he'd lose respect with the people of surrounding nations. If he sacrifices the son he'd been waiting all this time, I mean, literally, in taking the life of his son, he's giving up everything. Why does he do it? He does it because his faith in God is such. Hebrews 11 tells us that his faith in God is so secure that he's actually confident God will keep his promise still, that even if he kills his own son, God will keep his promise. That's how true, that's how sure and how steady God's word is. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed that if he took the knife to his son, that God would raise him from the dead, because that's how sure the promises of God are. Abraham believed. And it says in Genesis 22, which we were looking at a second ago, in Genesis twenty-two fifteen, the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time. The first time the angel of the Lord calls to him, he says, hey, don't kill your son. There is an offering in the thicket. Grab the ram and sacrifice that instead. The second time God speaks to him, he says this. This is Genesis twenty-two fifteen. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God reaffirms his promise, which he didn't need to do because God's word is true. Abraham believed that. He reaffirms his promise with one difference. There's a change in Genesis 22 from the ways in which he'd promised God before. The difference is that he starts with an oath, an oath on himself. He says, I swear by myself that you will be a great nation, that I will bless you, that I will grow you, that your descendants will be uncountable like the sand and the stars. But he begins with an oath, and it's to that oath that the writer to Hebrews is referring when he's giving us an example of someone who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Abraham. We like to follow the examples of people, right? We like, we like a good example. Sometimes illustrations or examples are helpful. And here, Abraham becomes a very helpful example to us. We, uh, we, my, house, my, my son, William, has always been like super into Legos. And uh, so he likes to, you know, get the book out and build the thing exactly the way it's supposed to be built. And they give you the pictures and whatever. But in the last year or so, Will has become, uh, he, he sort of transitioned from being into Legos into, into building Ikea furniture. That's like his new thing, which 
is essentially the same deal, just on a larger scale, right? Ikea is like Legos for older people. Well, we bought, when we moved into our house in Fullerton, we bought this cabinet, uh, like a little shelf thing for kids to put their backpacks into. And my son, Will, who's 10, he goes, I want to build the cabinet. He's like, I want to build it. And we were like, can you build it? He's like, of course I can build it. I can do Legos. And we're like, yeah, that's a good argument. So, um, (laughs) So he's going to build a cabinet and uh, I'm at work, but my wife texts me a picture. She goes, you got to see this. She texts me a picture and it's a picture of my son, Will, and he's, uh, he's kneeling down by all the pieces from the cabinet and he's got a pencil tucked behind his ear, which is weird because he doesn't normally do that. And then kind of across the room is my son, Hank, who's old, he's in high school and my son, Hank is standing there and he's holding a hammer. And I'm like, what's going on in this picture? And my wife goes, the instruction page. She texts me a picture of the instruction page. The first page of the Ikea instructions has a picture of one guy for some reason holding a hammer on the other side of the room, right? (laughs) And then over here, there's a guy kneeling down with a pencil tucked behind his ear. So what my son William had done, he's like, I want to do this thing right. We are going to recreate the example exactly as it occurs in the book, right? I don't even think you use a hammer to build that cabinet. I think Hank just stood over there the whole time with a hammer in his hand. I don't know. But that's how serious he took following the example, right? We want to take seriously following the example that's put out here. And there are many of those, but the story of Abraham is so key. Look at what it says back in Hebrews chapter six, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He swore by himself. That's really interesting, isn't it? That God swears by himself. He says, I swear by myself that I'll do the things I promised. You kind of have to look at it and go, well, what is that? What, what is this idea of God confirming his promise with an oath on himself? And the writer sort of gives us some understanding of it. He says in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation, right? We sort of understand that. We understand that in common practice, there's, there is, when you're dealing with human beings, a lack of trust, right? We kind of look at everybody and go, are you really going to do what you say you're going to do? Are you really going to follow through? Is your word trustworthy? And so there's a thing that happens in our, I mean, even in our courtrooms, right? When somebody's going on trial, what do they have to do first? They got to put their hand on a Bible, right? These days, I, I watch people do that. And I think, do those people even care about the Bible? But they put their hand on a Bible and they swear an oath on something greater than themselves, God's word. Back in the day, that actually meant something to people, right? You'll hear people say something like, I swear to God, or I swear on the, my grandmother's grave, or what, like they use these grandiose things. Why do they do that? Because we as human beings are fundamentally flawed and sinful, and our word by itself is typically not trustworthy. When I was in elementary school, I mean, the, the biggest deal was the pinky swear, right? I mean, if somebody was willing to go that far, if somebody was willing to, you know, pull the pinky swear, you knew you probably could trust them, right? But even then, it's not for sure. Even when somebody puts their hand on a Bible and swears an oath in a court of law, sometimes they get on the stand and they lie. We live in a world where there's a lot of insecurity and sometimes you don't know who's telling the truth and who's not. And there are people who who absolutely can't be trusted. And so they say things like, I promise or I swear. And we always want to swear on something more powerful than ourselves. When God wants to confirm the truth of what he said with an oath, He has no one or no thing greater than himself by which to swear. And so he swears by himself. The greatest, the most supreme, the most powerful, the most worthy. 
He swears by himself. But, but why even does he do that? That's important. It, he tells us in the text. It says in 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's a long statement, but let me try and break it down for you. What it's telling us is that God swears the oath to Abraham and then by extension to us as the heirs of the promise. When it talks about heirs of the promise, that's us. We are the descendants of Abraham. Those of us who are in Christ are the descendants and the ancestors of Abraham that he was talking about. We are the fulfillment of God's promise. It says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We are the ultimate and eventual fulfillment of this promise made to Abraham. And he says, what God was trying to do when he swears this oath, when he swears this oath on himself, what he's trying to do is he's trying to speak to people who are by very nature fearful and afraid because we've interacted with one another and we have to give all kinds of oaths to sort of back up the things we say because we're fundamentally untrustworthy, that God leans in to language that we understand. He takes on a posture that makes sense to us. Because we live in a broken, fallen society and we constantly use oaths to affirm what we've said and to back it up, God does this. Why? Because he desires, it says, and this is, this is a demonstration of his affection. God desires that you and I would have a firm and secure confidence in what he has said and what he's promised and who he is. It says in 17, It says in 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. What do we see in this? We see that God wants to lead us through confidence. He wants to lead us by giving us the ability to trust in him, to hope in him. There are lots of different kinds of leaders in this world. And sometimes leaders like to lead with, you know, superiority and power. They like to lead with the threat of punishment, right? You are going to follow me and you're going to do what I say or else you're going to get punished or else you're going to get chastised, right? There are some leaders who like to lead with a spirit of confusion and disinformation and all kinds of, you know, like you just don't know what to trust. And so you kind of lean on the leader because you don't know where else to go. God isn't trying to lead us through confusion. He's not trying to lead us through chaos. He's also not trying to lead us through terrorizing us. He's trying to lead us by giving us a firm hope in who he is and what he has said. He desires for us not to be afraid. He desires for us not to be worried. He desires for us not to lose confidence, but to be able to rest in the truth of who he is. These two unchangeable things, his his promise, the word he's already said, And his oath on himself, his unchangeability, right? His promise or his word, his word is truth. And his oath, which is indicative of his unchangeableness. It says in Numbers, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. says, God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? What's it saying? It's saying God's not like you and I. He's not like the people that have abandoned us and the people that have told us one thing and done another. He's not like the people who've looked into our eyes and told us bold-faced lies and brought us to a place where we don't know who we can trust or what we can believe. He's not like 
the culture in which we live, where you look on Facebook or you watch the news or you turn on the radio and you're not sure what to believe. God is certain and sure. His word does not change. It says in, uh, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. I want you to see that this oath God swears he does because he cares about you. This is something that God wants for you and I. He wants us to be confident in him. He doesn't want us to be afraid. He doesn't want us to be confused. God leads through clarity. He leads through clarity. It's actually a great example to those of us who would be leaders after his heart, right? To lead through clarity and not through confusion or fear. It says, back to Hebrews chapter 6, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. We like guarantees, don't we? You buy a new dishwasher or you buy a new mattress or you buy a new car, you want to know, okay, what's the guarantee? If this thing turns out to be junk, you're going to give me my money back, you're going to replace it, do I have to pay for the shipping? Like what? I want to read all the reviews, right? I want to know what other people have said about this dishwasher. We, We look for guarantees. Listen, Jesus himself is the guarantee of the promise of God for us. He desires to un, like, like for us to unconvincingly, that's not right, he desires for us to be convinced of his hope. He says, when God desired to show more convincingly, there it is, to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character's purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 18, so that by two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things, both his word, which is sure, and his oath, which is unchanging. His oath, which is unchanging, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He desires for you and I to have strong encouragement and hope because of who he is, because of his word and his unchangeability. That's something he wants for us. And so he makes this oath to Abraham. And he also makes an oath, by the way, when talking about Melchizedek. Remember, the writer is, uh, he's sort of in a parenthetical statement, but he plans to get back to the talk about Melchizedek. Remember that in Psalm 110, verse 4, in the Messianic prophecy about Jesus, it says, he swore with an oath and will not change his mind that you, speaking of the Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we see God swear both to Abraham in Genesis 22, and we see God swear with regard to the Messiah that he is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek and he will not change his mind. He wants us to have this confidence and he speaks more to that than in 19. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, right? A sure and steadfast. What's sure and steadfast? Well, that's true and unchangeable. An anchor for the soul, right? He wants us to, to be able to survive the storms of life the things we can't predict, the things we have no power to change. He wants us to be able to weather those storms because of an anchor which isn't rooted in... Listen, if you've ever put your faith in a person and been disappointed, doesn't that make it harder to put your faith in a person again? Can I just tell you this morning, I I don't know what your anchor is. I don't know if you come into the place this morning feeling fearful or worried, if there are circumstances in your life that feel like storms are raging. But can I tell you this this morning, that if you've got your faith in a person... Or if you've got your faith in an institution, or if you've got your faith in some sort of stuff, right? Whether that's money or your personal ability, or whether that's the perception of other people and your reputation. If you've got your hope anchored in people or stuff, can I tell you both of those things? They all end up in the dump or the graveyard. 
They all end up in the dump or the graveyard. If you've put your hope in your savings account, you're destined to be disappointed. If you've put your hope in other human beings, you're destined to be disappointed because they are broken just like you. If you've put your hope in the thinking of other human beings, you're destined to be disappointed because they are broken just like you. Look, don't come to a church and put your hope in me because I'm a human being who's broken just like everybody else. Don't come to church and put your hope in the institution of organized religion because it's made up of broken people. All of us, each and every one of us can only find a sure and steady anchor for our souls in the person and work of Christ and him alone. And anything that you've put your hope in other than that, you know already has failed you or will fail you. It all falls apart. But God desires something better for you. He desires something better for me. He desires for me to anchor my soul in his promises in who he is and what he's done and what he said. That's an anchor. And it's not an anchor that sinks to the depths. In fact, it says here that it's an anchor that goes up, right? An upward anchor. An anchor, it says, that goes behind the veil, the curtain. The curtain there, the idea is that in the temple there was a curtain that separated away the Holy of Holies, a place that only the high priest could go. It was a place where the presence of God dwelled. And the high priest would only go once a year. And even in that one time that he would go, there was always a chance that being in the presence of God, that he'd get killed. So they tied a rope around his ankle so they could drag his corpse out later, right? The high priest would go once a year as a representative for the people into the Holy of Holies. But what it says is that our anchor is not anchored in the bottom of the ocean. It's not anchored in the depths. It's not anchored in in something that shifts and changes. Our anchor, our firm and secure hope is behind the curtain. Where's that? In the very presence of God. That's where our anchor lies, in the presence of God. A place where it says here in verse 20, Jesus has gone as a forerunner. The Old Testament priests were not forerunners. The Old Testament priests were not forerunners. They were representatives. I said that already. The priest would go in as a representative for the people and he would offer sacrifices, right? Jesus is not a representative of the people. He's a forerunner. What does that mean? It means that what Jesus does when he goes through the curtain, when he secures our anchor in the very presence of God, that what he does is he also opens a way for you and I to follow after into the very presence of God. He's not a representative. He's a forerunner that opens the way to us to experience the presence of God. He himself, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which we'll talk about next week. He says in 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He finally gets to the end of his parenthetical statement. He goes, oh yeah, I was talking about Melchizedek. Here we go. We come into seven. He's gonna gonna elaborate more about that. But can we just stop and talk about this idea of an anchor for the soul? Can we talk, talk this morning about the idea of modern faith, our faith, anchored in ancient truth? What is it you've got your anchor in this morning? Are are you trusting in your 401k? Are you trusting in the promises of people or are you feeling absolutely tossed by the storms of life because you don't have any kind of an anchor because you tried to have your anchor in a person or in a system or in an idea and it's fallen apart. It's so amazing to me how often people will go, oh, you know what? This system has failed me and so I'm going to come up with another system to put my faith in. That happens with church all the time, right? People go, oh, you know, the traditional church have failed me, so I got a new way to do church, and I'm going to put all my hope in that. Listen, don't put your hope in a way to do church. 
It will always let you down. Don't put your hope in people. Don't put your hope in things that fade away. The secure and steady anchor for our souls is Jesus himself. We have his promises. I think of promises like these. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You'll note that in this text in Hebrews chapter six, it talks about this confidence or this surety, this certainty being for those who have fled for refuge. Who is that? Who, who are these refugees he's talking about? Well, it's us. It's everyone who's ever woken up and recognized that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. We flee for refuge to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ because we are lost and dead in our sin, because apart from him, there is no life. So we flee from sin and death. We flee from the brokenness of this world. We flee from all of the swears and the oaths and the pinky promises that ultimately don't mean anything. And we flee for refuge to the one who can offer us a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. He points at Abraham and he says, imitate a guy who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Faith and patience inherited the promises. And you know what? On that path of faith and, promises, faith and patience, God actually asked him to give up the most vital thing in his life. I wonder this morning if there are some of you who have Isaacs in your life you're not willing to turn loose of. If there are things in your life, you go, well, I'll follow God and I'll live for him, but you know, I gotta hold on to this thing. When, when Abraham walks down off that mountain, having raised the knife to slay his son, he is blessed with the confirmation and the confidence that nothing is more important to him than God. If you have something here this morning that you're not willing to turn loose of, if you have something that is your most precious thing and you won't turn loose of it, can I tell you, you live daily and hourly, moment by moment, in the knowledge of the fact that there is something, maybe even just one thing, that is more important to you than God. And until you're willing to put that thing on the altar, you'll never know what it's like to truly be anchored to truly put your hope and your trust in something sure and steady because you've got your trust in whatever that thing is or whatever those things are. Abraham turns loose of it and he's able to see that God can be trusted, that God is a God who keeps his promises. I don't know where your anchor is this morning. I don't know what you've put your hope in, but are you feeling like it's let you down? Are you feeling like the thing you trusted in has walked away or failed you? Can I tell you there is only one place for you and I to anchor our souls. And that's in the word of God, which is truth, and in his unchangeability, in the promises that he's made to us, in this great salvation. Those of us who have fled for refuge find unswerving confidence, faith coupled with action. Would you pray with me this morning? Before I pray, I just wanna say this. I recognize that in a room like this, there may be some of you who've never put your faith in Christ. They that you don't have an anchor for your soul. Even the idea of it may be foreign to you. Can I just reaffirm the idea here that Jesus loves you, that he desires for you to have confidence, not only in this life today, but confidence into eternity. Not based on your work, not based on your accomplishments, not based on your good deeds, but based on his death and resurrection, his shed blood on your behalf. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, I appeal to you, will you surrender yourself to him?
Will you cry out to Jesus in the quietness of your own heart and say, Jesus, will you rescue me from sin and death? Will you save me from sin? You surrender your life to him. Turn away from all of these unstable anchors and turn to Jesus. God, I pray that you would move in us, that we would put our faith in you, that we would trust in you and you alone and recognize that that's not just something we choose to do, it's something you desire for us, that you desire for us to have confidence, strong encouragement, that you do not change your mind, that you have said something and you will do it, that you are a sure and steady anchor for us. We pray these things in Christ's name.